Hey, Strange New Worlds listeners, it's your host, Mike Wong. Before we jump into a fascinating interview with today's guest, I want to let you know that I'll be appearing in a documentary for the very first time. This is a PBS Nova series called Ancient Earth that begins airing on October 4th, 2023, and details the dramatic evolution of our homeworld, from its planetary birth to the emergence of humanity. I'm going to be featured in the first episode titled Birth of the Sky, which tells the story of how Earth transformed from a barren hellscape to a planet capable of sustaining life. I'm really excited to watch the final product, and I hope that you tune in too. Once again, it's the PBS Nova documentary series Ancient Earth, and I've put a link to the trailer in the show notes. Now, on to the main show. Today's guest is historian Daesun Oka, who's appeared numerous times in the past on Strange New Worlds to discuss the intersection between Star Trek and topics such as colonialism, capitalism, memorialization, and shadow organizations. Now he's back to help me discuss nationalism and Star Trek. The United Federation of Planets is often thought of as the United States of America in space. But is the Federation a nation-state? How is it like a modern nation-state, and how is it not? And how does science fiction in general, and Star Trek in particular, help us understand nationalism right here, right now? Let's go talk to Daesun and find out. Engage! Jason, I'm so excited to welcome you back to Strange New Worlds. It's been far too long since you've been on the podcast. Thanks, Michael. I'm super excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me again. I'm really excited for this chat, too, because as always, I just know you're going to blow my mind. Um, let me tell the audience a little bit about the origin of the concept for this episode. So a little while ago, meaning probably more than a year ago, I was getting pretty distressed at the state of the world, especially the rise of violence associated with nationalism. And I remember wondering out loud to you, really exasperatedly, why do we even have countries? And amazingly, being the incredible historian that you are, you had an answer for me, and you recommended that I read a whole book called Imagined Communities, Reflections on the Origin and Spread of Nationalism by a person named Dr. Benedict Anderson. And I read it. <laughs> I've got it in my hands right here. Um, and today we are here to talk about nationalism and its connections to Star Trek. So, Desun, to just start us off, let me ask you a very simple yes or no question. Is the United Federation of Planets a nation state? Yes, I think so. <laughs> Okay, clear answer. It is. Yep. It is. <laughs> what yeah. about like the Klingon Empire and the Romulan Star Empire and all the other kind of like geopolitical entities that we see in Star Trek? Yeah, um, I think throughout the entire like multiple series throughout the entire Star Trek universe, like based off of uh, those contents, I, I do think that the authors and the scriptwriters were basing the the Federation, the Klingons, all these uh, political entities off of uh, the modern nation state 
kind of framework that exists in Earth today. I think it's a continuation of that. And I think we also do see something else different and new. Uh, but for the most part, I think it is a reflection of like the nation states we see on planet Earth. So to get us all on the same page, let's start off with the definition of a nation state. Jason, what yeah. exactly is a nation state? Yeah, so nation state is a way of organizing and categorizing peoples and extending a jurisdiction of a state into people, lands, and history. So we could break apart the nation state into two categories and or two definitions. First of the nation, the nation is, is this uh, community of peoples bounded by this shared notion of at least as Benedict Anderson defines it like language or ethnicity or culture. And this state is a, a collection of institutions with the, the legitimate use of force and jurisdiction and power um, over a certain land or certain peoples. So then the nation state as a singular term is the state and the nation as defined by each other. So for example, a nation state would be the nation state of the United States, which comprises of state institutions, the army, the military, its entire bureaucracy that legitimizes itself through the ideas of the nation. So it's like these uh, institutions are able to tell the people that it governs, that we have jurisdiction over you because we represent the state arm of the nation. So then the nation state is this kind of like combined category that like of the nation and state that like kind of defines and like constitutes each other. You know, because I grew up in the United States, which is clearly a nation state, it's hard for me to imagine even what it would mean to have a nation without a state. And maybe this next question for you will help me answer that. So I remember when you told me that the oldest nation state currently on the face of the planet is only a few hundred years old. And that blew my mind because nations seem so eternal. What was there before there were nation states? Yeah, so before the rise of nation states in the like 17 and 1800s, the main political like format of the political jurisdiction was like empires. So you had a, a stretch of land with multiple communities, people, languages, all expressing loyalty to an emperor who had divine power and divine jurisdiction. So through the mandates of a higher spiritual power, heaven or God, this emperor represented the representation of that spirituality and divinity on earth and therefore the people under the emperor's realm is to express loyalty and deference to the emperor so you had an imperial system throughout the most of human history before the rise of the nation state system multiple peoples multiple languages express their subjecthood their loyalty to an emperor who was connected and legitimized through access to the divine and the spiritual and to god this was like most of the, the most of the world. There's definitely communities that have existed that don't operate off of the imperial framework, but the imperial framework is important because nation states emerge from that. So why is the Klingon Empire a nation state and not sort of like what preceded nation states on Earth? No, good question. So the, for example, the Klingon Empire, I think is a nation state because there's this notion of a people's defined by a culture, ethnicity, or language, mm. aka Klingon. And then a modern state as represented through modern state institutions like the army, the military, the navy, the representative governments, houses, and the chancellor. Mm -hmm. uh, but these are also all legitimized and defined through Klingonness and uh, Klingon identity. So then I think the Klingon empire, it's like there's a people's ethnicity and language component to them, but then all of that is also constitutes 
the Klingon state. And the state derives its power through legitimacy from those like Klingon culture, Klingon language, Klingon family structures. And I think that is why the Klingon empire is considered a nation state, but also it also can be defined as a multinational state in that it has other nations within the Klingon empire or other peoples that consider themselves as a separate nation that's apart from the Klingon empire, but are still within the same Klingon state. So you have stateless nations who aren't Klingon, who view themselves as distinct from Klingon culture, language, or ethnicity, but are still part of the Klingon empire. So it's a nation state, but it's also a multinational state as well. I see. I see. Okay. And so then the Federation is also a nation state in that there is something, there is some Federation-ness <laughs> that sort of mm-hmm. binds all of the member worlds of the Federation, sort of like how there is some Americanness that binds all of the separate states in the United States of America yeah, together. Right, right. Yeah. So like the defining concept of nation could be culture, ethnicity, or language, but it could also be shared values. And mm. I think the Federation and the Klingon Empire also demonstrates that too. So the Federation, the shared value of exploration, of scientific research, of human dignity, conscious dignity, like I think those are some of the defining aspects of the Federation nation as well. So then, yes, the entire Federation can be constituted as a nation state. So getting back to the history of the development of nation states on Earth, this Mm -hmm. book, Imagined Communities, describes how a changing view of time allowed for the imagining of the nation. It used Mm -hmm. to be that, quote, cosmology and history were indistinguishable, the origins of the world and of men essentially identical, end quote. But today, you know, we have a much different view of time, one in which time is sort of like an empty vessel to be filled with new events. But apparently that wasn't always so. And this was one of the most fascinating points of the whole book for me. Desun, could you tell us a little bit about how this changing conception of time took place and why did it help enable the idea of the nation? Yeah, absolutely. So a feudal peasant in the 1200s or the 1300s is going to think that their past and their present and their future are all part of a single continuity. And that is he, that peasant, thinks of himself as a subject of this empire that has existed for time immemorial and it's going to continue to exist. Then you fast forward to the 17 and 1800s where you have the emergence of capitalism and of industrialization and you had the merchant class basically uh, push back against the supreme jurisdiction and divinity of the emperor. And so they started to become invested in this idea of the nation state, of of democracy, of representational democracy, and of a peoplehood whose uh, jurisdiction and sense of rights can exist outside of the emperor or the king. So then they start to argue like, no, we can self-govern for ourselves, this nation, the people can govern for themselves. And so they started to develop this idea of of a nation that is not necessarily tethered to the emperor or to a singular king. So then one of the core ideologies of these groups of people was the idea of democracy and of progress and of nationhood. And that also required a sense of time and of sense of like progress. So this new nation state in embodying the values of democracy says that there is a past now we're working away from the past and we're working towards a future that 
is closer to representative democracy of liberty, of uh, freedom that supposedly the nation state is supposed to uh, provide for. Yeah, I can totally see how if your conception of time was that the past, present and future was all the same, that you kind of lived in a very static universe, that these mm -hmm. concepts of progress, of working towards something, of gaining further and future liberties is kind of impossible to to even think of, right? Right. Um, right. And so it's really interesting to me this changing conception of time because it really plays into the co-evolution of the idea of a nation state with also the enlightenment and mm -hmm. scientific reasoning and in science you know we we tend to think of time in the way that we think of time today which is that it is this sort of like empty vessel in which events can happen and that progress takes place. We have this idea of the universe started off one way and it's been evolving towards something else ever since. It's not a static universe. It's probably not even a cyclical universe. It's a one unidirectional street from the Big Bang through now. And, you know, uh, theories of evolution, for instance, also evoke this idea of some kind of uh, direction in time. Uh, some might call it progress. I don't know if many evolutionary biologists would necessarily pin that term on it, but there is, you know, change in species. Life on Earth started out simple and microbial and, you know, eventually evolved into more complex entities like you and me who can have podcasts about nations. <laughs> um, but it's, yeah, it's just so, it's so interesting that, you know, maybe there is something about science and the development of scientific ideas that actually helped establish the groundwork for even imagining what a nation state could be. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, so it's no coincidence that the development of the nation state as it happened in probably the 1600s, it's the very genesis of it, also coincided with the late Enlightenment period too. And that the Enlightenment thinkers were also a threat to the imperial system of European dynasties. So it's a very powerful way one very powerful way to rule over a people is to say that i am past future and present and this mm. is what like imperial polities did and the feudal peasantry accepted that but then you introduce this concept of no there is a past and we're moving away from it to something new and distinct there is a cause and effect now there's one two three along a time scale that's very threatening to the the political order to the social order that empires have established to the peasantry. So, you know, it's no coincidence that like a lot of early Enlightenment thinkers were purged or targeted by um, the respective like imperials powers that they lived in, that the empires found this idea of the nation state to be a very threatening. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Because when you view a sequence of events in time, you can suddenly make the argument, it doesn't matter how long you've ruled in the past, tomorrow could be different. Like, did you know there used right, to be these things right. called dinosaurs? Yes, <laughs> They're gone yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, right, so. Right. Yeah, and I think um, some of the earliest Enlightenment thinkers were also philosophers of uh, government and politics too. And I think they understood the concept of change and progress in the natural world as something that is also applied to humans, that political systems and societies also can, is also reflected through change, through reason that they observed or that they thought they observed in the natural world as well. So another really important theme in this book, Imagined Communities, was about a cultural transition that had to do with language and that how, mm -hmm. how, how language 
uh, was the centerpiece for setting the stage for the national consciousness. So first of all, there was this decline of the idea that certain languages and certain languages only, like Latin, offered privileged access to the truth. Right. And so Mm -hmm. once that idea declined, you know, you could uh, access the truth through English or Spanish or Chinese or whatever. Um, And then second was the rise of print capitalism, which Mm -hmm. uh, enabled the rapid spreading of ideas and uh, new media like the newspapers. So, Desun, could you expand about this idea of language and the importance of information in creating national consciousness? Yeah. So the industrial age heralded in the history of humanity, the mass movements of people from uh, the countryside into the cities. So you had people who, they were no longer peasants, and then they had to move into the city to work as laborers. And so you had the massive like development of cities all over Europe with people coming in from the countryside and the huge population boom of these cities. But these peoples were from all over the countryside. And they didn't necessarily have this like identity of like, oh, we're Germans or, oh, we're English or, oh, we're French. They might have identified with the town or the village that they came from and spoken different languages and dialects. So in order to organize and better manage the influx of peasants into the new industrial labor force, print capitalism and print and a standardized language found itself to be a very convenient way to organize like a diverse array of, of peoples and languages that just all lived in the city now. So the, the movement of peoples to the industrial centers helped facilitated by uh, the advent of like national language, print media. And so like this print media on the practical sense gave everyone a same language, but also gave people a shared identity, a shared sense of nationhood as expressed through language or uh, shared holidays or shared languages shared cultures, you know, like you have a newspaper saying that this is the national holiday now. Everyone celebrates it. Everyone, this is a shared ceremony that maybe didn't exist 100 years ago. But now this ceremony exists so that people from villages hundreds of miles apart from each other can come together and say, oh, we are French now, we're German now, and we're English now. So you see the rise of like industrialization, the movement of people into centralized places like cities, coincided with the development of print capitalism, of national language, and also of nation-state identity. Yeah, thinking about newspapers just a little bit more, the book made a really amazing point about how a newspaper was basically like a physical coalescence of nationness in that like when you when you pick up a newspaper uh, i don't know if we pick up newspapers these days or when you go online to uh, you know whatever web page you, you get your news from and then you see all these different headlines and you're like oh yeah this thing happened to that person over there that person died this sports team is doing well and you're just wondering like you know what do all of these have in common, if at all, you know, I'm never going to meet that politician, and maybe I don't follow that sports team and this business or whatever, I'm, I don't use their product. But what they all have in common is that they all are part of your nation. And that helps bind yeah. you to all of these other people that are simultaneously reading that news too, about all of these things that are happening to you collectively, as a nation. Right. I thought that was so right. fascinating. Absolutely. And I think that's the power of the nation state. And it allows peoples from all like the farthest reaches of that nation state to identify with every other region of that nation state. A tragedy or an event that happens in one province is something that is collectively shared with the rest of the peoples of that nation state. That's very powerful. That's a way that like 
if you're the government of that nation state, then you can leverage the happenings of one side of the state and one level of the state, and then project that to the rest of the nation and leverage people and coordinate people accordingly. And I think that's, it was, it's a very powerful tool that the nation state found itself armed with. Yeah. I've never thought of the newspaper as a tool of the nation state before, but that is yeah. just, yeah, absolutely mind blowing. And it really made me think about Star Trek reading this part of this book, because something that struck me was that the Federation has a national language, right? We've got this Federation standard, which I think we're probably supposed to assume is English, but no matter what the Federation standard actually is, why do you think the Federation has a national language at all? After all, they they live in the age of universal translators, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think this is probably the way that the writers or authors tried to incorporate the idea of like shared concepts or shared values across like multiple planets and multiple languages. Maybe this is how the Federation was able to merge several interests together in, in into a singular nation state. And I think that goes to show like the writers were working off of a nation state framework that they understood. And then they tried to apply that to a science fiction case into a, into a state that encompassed multiple planets and multiple communities and said, maybe that we can apply the nation state framework into the 22nd, 23rd century. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. So nation states also tend to try to inherit legitimacy from antiquity. Yeah. For example, right. many nation states in the West consider themselves inheritors of ancient Hellenistic civilization, even if the link is rather tenuous. And I'm reminded of this every time, Desun, that I walk around Washington, D.C., which has been my home for the past two years, and I see all of these buildings and monuments with Greco-Roman columns. And, right. you know, it strikes me that in Star Trek, the Federation is not immune to this either. They do it with starship names, for instance, like, right. you know, calling the, their flagship the Enterprise. What is the Enterprise? Well, Enterprise was the name of ancient Earth naval vessels. And they, you know, in the NX-01, Captain Archer's ready right. room even has like a port portrait of that. So it's like deliberate. It's very deliberate. They named this thing mm -hmm. after a series of Earth ships at a time in which there was no Federation of Planets for Earth to belong to. Also, you know, Voyager is the name of the first NASA space probe to leave the solar system. NASA is not the same thing as Starfleet, which is not the Federation. So, Jason, um, why is it that nations try to co-opt the past to serve their present? Yeah, good question. The power of the past is like you can take the past and tell other people, this is your history also. This is a shared history that we can own collectively together. So it's one way of telling one villager from 100 miles away and then another villager even further out and say, you two have something in common. You two have a shared history that you guys are all descendants from. It allows the nation state basically to say, we all belong, we are all descendants of such and such histories we're like ancestors of this history or of these peoples therefore we're closer to each other than we actually are and this is how the nation state kind of demonstrates jurisdiction over people so it's like the power of history um power of like antiquity and like legends is that it allows in summary people who might ordinarily maybe had nothing to do with each other who don't know even know each other to say oh we're actually a family like we share a common ancestor and so it's it's a way to extend this nation state's jurisdiction into uh, multiple peoples and families. 
I keep thinking about, you know, the example of Voyager, for instance, and you could imagine being a human member of Voyager's crew and thinking, oh, yeah, this ship was named after that space probe that first left the solar system that NASA launched. It's like I'm serving in this like proud tradition of human space exploration here by serving on Voyager. But then you think about like Tuvok, you know, his Vulcan, <laughs> uh, he has no real connection um, through any kind of lineage to NASA or the Voyager space probes. But maybe, you know, by serving on Voyager and knowing that history and being taught that, you know, you're a part of this too, Tuvok also kind yeah. of feels like he is a part of this grand endeavor that spans way beyond his own lifetime as, as long yeah. as it might be. Right. No, exactly. So like the Voyager history, the early enterprise history that existed before the Federation existed. It was it's specifically an Earth history. But then fast forward 200 and 300 years later, it becomes Federation history. So then that also extends the legacy of that history to everyone who is not from Earth. And so it's like it becomes like a shared history that everyone in the Federation can like buy into and see other people in the Federation as like fellow peoples as like uh, peoples who are also part of the same family. Yeah. And so I think that's why also the Federation reflects modern nation states here in the 21st century in that like, for example, you know, from California, we learn in our eighth grade curriculum, uh, the history of the United States, the events that happened in the late 1700s in the East Coast, thousands of miles away, as part of our history. It's like we had nothing to do with that history. Like it happened thousands of miles away. Our families weren't, you know, part of that history either. But nonetheless, it becomes our history anyways. So it's like the nation state is freely providing this history to us as a way for us to then identify our loyalties and our investments into the nation state, the American nation state. This reminds me so much of a conversation we had a few years ago on the podcast about memorials and memory making and myth making. Mm -hmm. And it seems like this kind of assimilation of legitimacy from antiquity is exactly that process. Yeah, absolutely. So like going back to like my earlier definition of a state, the state is a collection of institutions that have legitimate use of violence, but it's not as dry as that. Like it's not just like, a bureaucracy with people in it and say like we can apply law and we can apply the use of force but there's symbols and culture around the state too so like the state issues currency and on that currencies are symbols of the nation and there's like a history like printed on the currencies that ties people within the state's jurisdiction together through notions of culture or language or history. And the state also is invested in museums and education, public education being one of the strongest avenues and platforms where the state can exercise power. Um, so it's like this: the state isn't really just a dry set of institutions. It's very much involved in the, the production of culture, of history, of memory, through currency, through uh, museums, through memorials, through public education through rituals like federal holidays, through oaths and pledges, through festivals, et cetera. All, all, the, the state is very much invested in the, in the business of culture. Absolutely. You know, talking about the nation state like this, it evokes a kind of teleological view of what's going on. And I was just wondering, from your perspective, does the nation state have a goal? And if it does have a goal, what is the goal? And is it all just about power and maintaining power? 
one of the ways that nation states in the 17 and 1800s onwards have legitimized itself is that we're working towards a more perfect representation of democracy, of prosperity. And this is very important for the American nation state in that like the founders have established this nation state to become a representation of democracy and human liberty. So democracy and liberty is also like, it's a concept that like is something to be strived for in the future. And we embody in the present, but we can work towards perfecting it. So the nation state definitely has like, at least in, for the American nation state, an end goal in, of democracy and liberty. So that's something that also binds people in the present too, like, you know, participate in the nation state. So then you will have a greater sense of freedom or prosperity. So yeah, the sense of future promises is very much a powerful in the nation state and salient in the way that nation states project jurisdiction and power over its citizens. So you've brought up democracy a few times so far, and I agree that totally like on paper, the goal of the nation state, or at least our nation state, is to promote democracy. And yet I'm so troubled by all of the things that we see today in terms of our democratic institutions being eroded and the rise of very non-democratic entities, not just domestically, but also abroad, right? You see a lot mm -hmm. of totalitarian, authoritarian sorts of leaders emerge across the world. Mm -hmm. And so that makes me wonder if the goal of the modern nation state really is democracy or if it is something else. And sometimes democracy serves that goal and sometimes right. it doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. So then this brings up to another concept called citizenship. So the nation states projects itself through the concept of citizens. Like a nation state is offers protection, rights, and liberties through a people. But it's not just any people, it's a citizen. And then who is a citizen and who isn't a citizen has been fraught with throughout the centuries through violence, exploitation, colonialism, and slavery, and racism. So like, for example, in the United States, it was a nation state that was founded on the principles of democracy and freedom, but concurrently, like in the constitution, it defines like, so then who is a person that is, who's able to reap the benefits of democracy and freedom? It was definitely not slaves from Africa, not indigenous people in North America, but people from Europe, settlers from Europe. So it's like, it was literally written into the constitution that like citizenship was only given to a certain class of people. And so like the nation state also is invested in this idea of like exclusive citizenship too. But then that leads to like various like contradictions and like moments of crises where you have entire populations of people who exist in the nation state, who demand to be, who demand to live and prosper, also not receiving the same rights and benefits promised by the nation states, or in other words, actually are targets by the nation state because the nation state also promises its own constituencies the right to a land or to right to a prosperity or rights to labor from other people that they enslaved. So it's like within the nation state is also the exclusive notions of citizenship, exclusivist ideas of citizens. And so you have like, you know, fast forward throughout the next decades and centuries where you have peoples who might not fit into one nation state or another, but then nation, the various nation states are trying to grab them and then like bring them into their jurisdiction. As well, so then you have conflicts erupting in in this time period, like in the 1800s and 1900s, in Europe, where like, where does this village belong? Which nation state does this village belong into? And nation states are vying for jurisdictions over these villages and their associated lands, and you have conflicts bringing up. 
and like manipulations of history and identity and culture as a way of like extending the nation state over a certain village that might be on a borderland or on what they think as ambiguous like territory. So you have like conflicts emerging in Europe during the 18 and 1900s, which is like basically a conflict of jurisdiction over peoples. And then likewise, you know, in the North, in North America, you have the nation state who is trying to define like, okay, who is someone that can be enslaved? Who is someone that can be kicked out of their lands? And who is someone that can own property? And these like categories were constantly being shifted and challenged by peoples um, within the continent. And, you, you know, this like resulted in, for example, the Civil War. There was one con- one ideology that said, no, there are certain peoples that can be enslaved and they don't have the rights to nationhood. And another ideology that says like, no, like these people do. Everyone has the right to uh, nationhood and citizenship. Everyone has the right to uh, sell their labor and earn a wage from it. So you have like, you know, these two fundamentally different ideas of who can be a person or who can be a citizen uh, led to like this huge conflict that culminated in, you know, the civil war in the United States. Um, so like this idea of citizenship, like it's, it's so fundamental to the nation state because it is the unit is a subject that is, can be ruled and the subject that gives the nation states credibility and legitimacy. And therefore the nation state is very much invested in like who is a citizen and who is not because it gives them power and legitimacy over peoples. Yeah. As an academic, I have a lot of colleagues who are not U.S. citizens who have come here to, you know, get an education and then find academic jobs. And I've, you know, had to listen to and hear about all of these trials and tribulations of trying to get work visas and green cards and everything. And so it just seems to me at this point that maybe the best definition of a nation state is this exclusive citizenship thing. It's like, it is that painful process of trying to get whatever you need to do to get citizenship uh, to, to get in. That's like almost like the major definition or border of what it what it is to be a nation. Yeah, yeah. And this process that sets the stage for the debate of citizenship and immigration that says like, there is a legal pathway for peoples from around the world to become a US citizen. And as long as they follow that, then that's legitimate and okay. So like it, it provides like this legitimizing like pathway for citizenship. But then on the flip side, then it tells everyone else there are illegitimate ways to become a citizen or to become a member of the nation state. You cannot cross the border illegally. But then what does that do? That also legitimizes the border too. And this says like this border is something that cannot be negotiated. So providing a legal pathway and a process then also legitimizes everything else around it that isn't that. So this process that kind of exists to bring legitimacy to itself, but also like then indirectly encode and like hard code things that are not to be crossed and not to be negotiated as well. I see how now everything is springing forth from this idea of exclusive citizenship, that it Mm -hmm. all rests upon that, that it's the people and who gets to belong to the nation state or who gets to have nationhood Mm -hmm. is really the crux of everything. Right. So, Dayson, we've explored several ways in which the United Federation of Planets is kind of like a nation state in space. I was wondering... For you, in what ways is the Federation not like a modern nation state? Yeah, good question. So what's really interesting, and that's something that the writers can like really explore more, is like 
for example, the case of intervention. Starfleet is obligated not to interfere in the events of things that happen outside of its borders or pre-warp civilization unless someone calls for help. So then like then that begs the question like what is considered requesting assistance and what is not. For example, like Starfleet ships are obligated not to cross a certain border or to interfere with like pre-warp civilizations. But then there's like caveats and exceptions to that rule that says like if anyone says like we need help then Starfleet vessels can go and help them. So what is like considered helping other people and what are those people called like when does help begin and when does help end and i think that's something that like the the writers can really explore and like that also answers the question like if you're a citizen then how much help are you allowed to receive and if you're not a citizen how much help are you not allowed to receive and like once you ask for self does that make you a federation citizen and like intuitive like intuitively from our perspective from the 21st century like it doesn't make sense where like if you just ask for help then like you are granted citizenship but like understanding the values of the federation it's purported values of the federation like that advances like dignity for all like peoples then you can argue that anyone who asks for dignity is considered a federation citizen so then the writers can explore like what is like the categories what is like the limits test what is the benchmark for like dignity of a person that allows them to like claim federation citizenship so that's i think something that the federation like kind of explores but like also leaves ambiguous too because it doesn't really address like any other way that peoples can become federation citizens like if you're born in a federation planet are you a citizen if your parents are members of the federation are you a citizen and therefore does that mean if you go to the farthest reach of the galaxy and demand for help that you are entitled to it star trek kind of leaves that ambiguous and uncertain and i think like that then leaves the writers room to like really explore i think the writers can really explore this avenue because like sure citizenship through blood or by land is how we understand citizenship in the 21st century but citizenship in a spacefaring civilization like that we, we we're not sure like star trek doesn't really define that i would like to see definitely more star trek writers like really cover that wow yeah that is so fascinating that the idea of citizenship in the federation could be fundamentally different from the idea of citizenship here on earth right now in the present <laughs> age like you said, there are certain qualities that you have or can gain or, you know, that you were born with that would grant you citizenship here and now. But what are those features? What are those characteristics that you must have to be a citizen of the Federation? Yeah. Right, right. And the, those features, you know, the Federation's purported values of scientific exploration and the advancement of like human dignity, of like sentient dignity is the crux of the federation so if anyone like how does then that become leverage for someone for a sentient being to advocate for federation citizenship that's like a definitely a really interesting and really cool area that the writers can explore um and you know it, it's not intuitive for our sense of citizenship in the 21st century we're very much understand that citizenship is like tied to the nation which is tied to ideas of culture and language which is why like, like sometimes the criteria for obtaining citizenship in modern nation states is like oh you have to pass a language test or you have to have one of your parents from that nation state or you have to purport a certain culture or language or value that's tied to ethnicity or culture or language you know so 
that makes sense in the framework of the 21st century of how we understand ethnicity, language, and culture. But then the Federation and Star Trek doesn't really ever address that in its media at all in, in any of its series or episodes. Um, I think Picard kind of mentions it a little bit where like they encounter these ex-Borgs and they kind oh, of right. are, they're kind of confused whether they're considered Federation citizens or whether they're stateless. I think that it was, it was an interesting like moment in like Star Trek, like history. That's like, okay, we're about to like broach this topic of citizenship. Um, So I think like that was like one kind of area that the writers could have gone into. So like, I'm definitely looking forward to like an expansion of that discussion for sure. But anyways, like going back to like the 23rd and 24th century, if the crux of the Federation identity is like scientific exploration and the advancement of like sentience and of development, we don't even know if rights exist, you know, in, in like the Federation world or in the universe. So like then maybe there's something else. Maybe it's not rights, but like personhood or sentience that like automatically grants people Federation citizenship. No one really knows for sure. It seems counterintuitive, but like I think that might demonstrate how the 23rd and 24th century is a very different place. You bring up so many amazing points. And to me, the takeaway is that in addition to science advisors on Star Trek, they need historical advisors too to bring up these really interesting points and to develop what it really means to be a citizen of the Federation, right? You brought up the great example of the mm. ex-Borgs, the ex-Bs from Star Trek Picard yeah. season one. Oh, I hope they cycle back to that because they sort of just left it alone. <laughs> after season one right, ended right. um and also like yeah what is what exactly is it you know does data being an android does he have citizenship in the federation you know he's not an organic life form but he does seem to have sentience so you know the, it seems like the rules would necessarily have to be different and exactly how different are they from the rules of today is right. one of those big open questions right absolutely and you know, there's like hints of citizenship sprinkled throughout Star Trek and the Federation. Like there's a president, there's a Federation council. So there's ideas of representation. And is that expressed through like the consent of certain citizens? Like are citizens a part of that process? Is there such a thing as a non-citizen in the Federation? Like we don't really know. And so like the, Star Trek makes like assumptions based on like 21st century, like political categories. But then it also leaves a lot of like ambiguity that I think writers can explore too, that can redefine citizenship for the 23rd and 24th century. We've explored today how nation states are a relatively recent phenomenon, right? Just a few hundred years mm -hmm. old. You know, Star Trek takes place a few hundred years from now. And it's quite right. possible that in reality, in our actual timeline, as we progress into the future a few hundred years from now, nation states may not exist because they didn't exist a few hundred years in the past. Right. So if and when we actually go to space, things might really change. Desun, do you think that the writers of Star Trek and honestly of most science fiction should be more creative and bold when imagining the geopolitical or cosmopolitical nature of the galaxy? Yeah, yeah. So going back to your idea of Federation standard as like a national language, like, do we need a Federation standard if in the case of like, you know, we have technologies that automatically like translate languages between multiple people. So then what role does like technology help to redefine like categories of nationhood? So like, for example, print capitalism, like print and newspapers, that's that's a form of technology. 
as well. And that, that technology enabled peoples from like all over the world, I mean, all over the region to identify in terms of a single like, lang- in terms of single language, in terms of a single nationhood. But then if you have new technologies that allow different languages to platform, like, I don't know, a tricorder or in like a visual pad, then like, do we need a national language? But then at the same time, like, what are the limitations of that technology that only allows like certain ways of communication to like, be legitimized or be the standard? Like, you know, for example, like, there's different ways of communicating that's not just spoken or verbal that Star Trek demonstrates. But then like the Federation kind of assumes a verbal mode of communication and like, of relating. But then we also have to think of different ways that species can relate to each other telepathically or non-verbally, you know, physically, chemically. So then like, how does that become encoded into like rule of law, into jurisdiction and into the way that the Federation governs itself? So I think like that's a really cool way that, you know, Star Trek can really show how jurisdictions govern. Like we govern through officially through the written word, the law to print what is written down. But then Star Trek has demonstrated time and time again that like people have related and connected with each other that is beyond the written form, that is beyond the verbal form, whether that's telepathically or like psychically or chemically. So then Star Trek can answer like, how does politics organize around those nonverbal, not written forms of, of relating to each other? And I think like that's that's a really cool area that we can all explore. So bringing things back to Earth now, like I said, we're seeing the rise of a lot of nationalistic tendencies too frequently erupting in violence across the world. And I just want to know, given your historian's lens, Sun, how do you explain our present moment in history? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So nationalism was a way for nation states and the ruling class to organize people in tandem with the development of industrialization and the creation of a labor force. So in summary, like nationalism allowed peasants to identify with the nation state and to work in the factories of the cities to, of course, generate profit for whoever owns the factories. But then also a couple decades down the line, like they weren't just working for profit for their bosses. They were working for the development of their nation state. So it's like the nation state allowed and legitimized labor or like basically told labor like okay if you work in these factories you can reap the benefits of working by developing this nation state and to develop a nation that will uh, support your family to provide a good income for your family to provide uh housing for your family etc etc so the nation state basically promises its ruled subjects like if you participate in this economic system that behind the scenes like the ruling class basically set up um, the nation states has participated in this economic system and we, you will reap the benefits of that. But over the past 50 years, like workers haven't been reaping the benefits of the nation state. The return on investments like not coming in. And this was very much true in the 1970s and 1980s and onwards. You haven't seen really a good rise in wages or like standards of living, even though you've seen like skyrocketing like profits on the corporate side. So then like, then this becomes like, a crisis, then the the promise of the nation state is like not looking attractive anymore. And so the nation state then finds a way to like kind of rein in on discontent and then offers the solutions that says like, 
okay, you know, you, you can actually invest further. Like you are special. There are certain people who are not special. And that if you keep investing in our system of like economics and our idea of like nation stateness, like you can actually make it. So then you see like ever increasing, like exclusive categories of citizenship and said like, this is a promised identity that only you have. And like, if you are able to like really reinvest yourself into it, then you can have it. And that expresses itself in terms of like xenophobia and like exclusive nationalism. Also, that also extends to various types of like, not just like exclusion on terms of ethnicity, but also in terms of like gender and sexuality too. Like there are certain like ways of being of reproduction that are not valid, that do not support the nation state, that are just going to weaken the nation state. So if you invest in like the family structure, if you invest in like the productive like nuclear family structure, then you are you are promised the idea of the nation state. Everyone else who does not invest in that is like antithetical to the nation state. So then the nation state also becomes evolved in like homophobia and transphobia as well. So yeah, so you see a rise of like xenophobia transphobia and homophobia as a way like this is in response to the nation state and to the economic system desperately trying to convince its constituencies that their system is still legitimate and valid so homophobia racism xenophobia sexism it, it there's a target group there's a victim identity there's a receiving end of those isms and those prejudices but it also tells peoples of the perpetrator group that you know on the flip side if you invest in certain identities in certain economics and certain ways of being then you are still promised the rewards of the nation state so like you can see like this resurgence of nationalism and xenophobia as a desperate way to tell its citizens who are also workers like okay i know your wages aren't increasing haven't been increasing over the past several decades like your your quality of life isn't going well but still believe in the promise of the nation state then like you will eventually you know obtain those promises and so like what we see is actually a crisis of economics that the nation state has for many decades benefited from but is so desperately trying to preserve wow 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 okay just to recap because that was a lot and that was very profound to make sure that i understand what you were saying because i think this is very important probably the most important thing that you've said in this entire hour <laughs> And you've said a lot of amazing things. But right now, basically, there's been an economic crisis for a long time that, you know, (laughs) capitalism has been unfair to so many people Mm -hmm. who have bought into the idea of the nation and the nation state to enter in and basically place a bet on the nation and on capitalism that there will be a return on investment. But there hasn't. So the nation state is asking people to double down to say, Mm -hmm. keep betting. But in order to do that, let us narrow what it means to be a part of this nation so that Absolutely. you feel like mm-hmm. you belong extra well to this yeah. to this idea. Absolutely. And that narrowing causes all of this cultural turmoil in terms of xenophobia, homophobia, transphobia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the things that you just mentioned, because it is squeezing who is legitimate in this conception of the nation state. Absolutely. You got oh, it wow. on point. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I'm going to have to <laughs> digest that, sit with that for a while, because that changes really how I see what is going on in the world right now in a really profound way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I'm glad that, you know, we could talk about this. And also, I'm glad that 
in this podcast, for instance, like in the post-scarcity economics of Star Trek, then we supposedly don't have like crisis of economics anymore in the Federation. So then that invites us to think about like, then what, what is citizenship based on? Like, what does it need to legitimize and what does it need to cover for? You know, if we think of like the nation state as covering for an economics or legitimizing economic system in which like the former peasants who are now citizen subjects can like buy into for a return on investments. If we think of the nation state as that, then like then that begs the question like, okay, in a post-scarcity economics, then like what's the point of a nation state? What is the crux that the nation state orbits around, like that operates around, you know? So I think that's where science fiction and Star Trek can really address and it opens up their minds too. Like then that begs like the question, like maybe nation states doesn't have to be like, oh, are you a so-and-so culture or ethnicity or language group that lives in the city? Like maybe citizenship doesn't have to be based on that, but instead become based on something completely new. The if you maybe you could be a citizen if you could just purport the idea of scientific exploration and espouse its values, whether non-verbally or verbally, or you just like chemically like express that then you become a federation citizen you know so like um yeah i'm imagining the species 10c right now trying to join the federation just chemically expressing scientific exploration yeah (laughs) that's great exactly so it seems counterintuitive for our 21st century like framework but like it's just as counterintuitive of like the whole premise of the federation like we don't really know like what this society is based off of what is a post-scarcity society? Like, we don't know that really. So yeah, like it opens up a whole new like arena and a platform we can explore what is belonging, citizenship, what is a state, what is a nation, what is a community more broadly. So I think that's the potential of Star Trek. Yeah, I really, really hope that they go there. This one, just one last question for you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I feel like I've seen tons of t-shirts out there that read, I'm a citizen of the world in like very optimistic, happy font, but I'm not exactly sure to what extent people actually believe that they're citizens of the world because nationalism is just so ingrained in our personal identities. So for you, in what ways can we possibly reimagine our collective and social identities on earth today? to try to reimagine ourselves in a united earth you know if nations are imagined communities can we reimagine ourselves in a way that star trek envisions for our future absolutely and i think the answer to that like you know well going back to that t-shirt like that t-shirt seems ridiculous because there's no power backing that statement i'm a citizen Mm -hmm. of the earth but then like which power is going to back you which set of institutions with the legitimate use of violence and force, aka a state, is going to ever support that claim? So if like if we imagine a united earth, and we also have to imagine like how is power going to be applied in united earth? Who has power and what are the institutions that have power? And how well is this institution going to project power through citizenship? So then I think before thinking about this statement, like we are citizens of the earth we have to ask like, okay, how are we going to yield power and like develop institutions that will support that claim, support like human or like earth citizenship. And so like that, then that becomes like a process of like building institutions and states and laws and legitimate use of force that like can back up that claim. Yeah. So it's, it's just, it's a discussion of power, I think. 
Well, thank you so much for being on Strange New Worlds again, Desun. Um, this was a lot of fun. Again, very mind-blowing and just something that will keep me thinking and has given me new lenses through which to see our modern world. So yeah, thank thanks, you Michael. Again. I think, yeah, absolutely. This was a great exploration for me. I have a lot of curiosities and just passion about like the potential of science fiction to think about like how power citizenship and nation state looks in the future so this has given me a lot of thought as well thank you yeah star trek writers get a historical advisor in addition to your scientific oh God, advisors you. it's very absolutely. much needed <laughs> thank you yeah yeah absolutely thanks michael that was historian Dason oka on nationalism and star trek Wow, there was so much to chew on in that conversation. And I honestly can't stop thinking about what Daesun said about the rise of nationalistic discrimination in the present day. Talking to Daesun always helps me see the world differently, and I really appreciate all of his insights and wisdom. You know, science and history might seem like completely different academic subjects at first. After all, we take them in school in completely different classes. But after years of discussions like this with Desun, I've come to see that science and history are actually rather similar. They both dig deep into why things are. It's just that science mostly asks about the natural world. Why do two chemicals react, or why do planets orbit the way that they do? On the other hand, history asks why questions about us. Why do we live our lives the way we do? And today I learned, and I hope that you learned too, why we live in nation-states. Why we haven't always lived in nation-states, and why we should keep an open mind about what the future of nationalism might look like. If you'd like to support Strange New Worlds and the fascinating conversations we have on this show, tell a friend about the podcast and consider leaving a rating or a review in your podcast app. Next time, we'll be talking to a pair of sports psychologists about our favorite android in the Star Trek universe, Data, and his evolution as a strategist. Until then, stay safe, stay curious, and I'll see you out there. I like love this show. Like, Aww. yeah, this is like a constant force of goodness. <laughs> <laughs>